feel like you were born in the wrong era? Do you pine for a time gone by? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Kaya Handley. Welcome to This Retro Life. This week, I don't think I even need to introduce our guest. He's the man behind a number of huge vintage festivals and events around the world. Tom Ingram brings rockabilly lovers from around the globe together each year for Viva Las Vegas. Every year the festival gets bigger and bigger. So what's behind its success? I think it's just the word getting out there about the event because we're we're not working to try and make it larger. Not at all. We just want it to grow. If it's going to grow, we want it to be organic. I think this year we're going to benefit from the Stray Cats being on the last one with all the new people who came. And, you know, some of, not all of them coming back, obviously, but some of them who really enjoyed it coming back. Do you think it means that the, the rockabilly, the vintage scene is growing around the world as well? Oh, definitely it's growing. Um, I wouldn't say it's growing fast, but it's growing in many more countries. I think that's where the difference is. Yeah, places like Europe have had a steady scene for a long time. So there it's like, here it's doing very well in the UK at the moment. But then we're getting all these new countries, especially from South America. You know, we get people from, we've had Colombia, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, you know, all these different countries down there. People are coming to Viva Las Vegas. Which is so cool because then you see this international flair and how each nation takes on rockabilly and the reflection of their community's history as well because in the 1950s you know everyone around the world was in a very different place depending on who you talk to post-war everyone was in such a different place so to see those international influences in today's modern rockabilly scene is pretty exciting yeah it is um yeah every country's got its own different take and slight difference on how they do it but i think that's what makes it so good is that people are injecting their own style. This year was my first Viva Las Vegas. It was my uh, 30th birthday adventure to myself. It was so great. You know, everyone had talked about it. I'd been watching it for years. It was so built up and I was so worried that you'd get there and it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be what you expect, right? Because especially travelling from Australia, you know, we're travelling 24 hours to get there. It's such an effort. It's such a trek. And I was so worried that it wouldn't live up to the expectations of what you see on social media. But I have to say, Tom, it was everything and and so much more. What do you think makes Viva special that it has kept going for what is about to be its 22nd year? I actually wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> so you can I, bottle it and sell it. Yes. Um, I think what it is is primarily we've stuck to – what the event set out to be. It's not been, nothing's been compromised just to get more people in. And if the event got smaller because the scene shrank, then we would just go with it Mm. and shrink the event to suit. And I think the fact that we stick to what we first set out to do is what makes the difference. And, you know, I was on the scene a long time before starting Viva and it's still the scene that I'm into. And I still go to the clubs and, Perhaps not as often as I used to, but I still do. I think that's the difference. It's not set out to be anything other than what it is. We will get back to talking about Viva Las Vegas. Don't worry about that. But let's find out about Tom Ingram. Where has his passion for rockabilly come from? When I go back to when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I've listened to a couple of radio shows we had in the UK 
and they were one hour shows that played all 50s music and I thought wow this music's good and <laughs> I was already into the glam rock we had in England in the 70s with bands like Chawadi Wadi and Mud and people like that and they wore drapes just like teddy boys and so at first at that age I thought oh that's what a teddy boy is <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what really got me into into it to start with and this was before the big explosion of rockabilly in the charts in the UK is before the Stray Cats were in the UK. Then I discovered that my football club had a function room and they would have, it was just a general disco every week, but loads of teddy boys would go down there and they would play 50s music for them. So I, I went down there a couple of times and didn't get to know anyone, but I realised that there was a scene I was interested in. I, I actually saved up some money to go and buy an Elvis LP. And one of my neighbours said to me, Oh, I've got a load of Elvis LPs you can have if you want them. <laughs> Suddenly, I was given this pile of original Elvis LPs, which I still have today. Oh, that's the dream. And, yeah, and so that was Elvis, and that was it. Just started from there. And so, then obviously discovered people like Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran and Bill Haley. So many people start with music. It's such a, a powerful gateway into then what becomes a bigger vintage obsession were you the only one of your your mates at that time as a teenage lad who was into this music at that time yes i was the only one the rest of them were into sort of more sort of rock music and things like that but no one else i was hanging around with was into the 50s scene and then we moved to london that was the big change <laughs> i think i was 15 or 16 at the time and you know going to school still and i got a saturday job on penge market on the fish store and there was some of my sort of age as a teddy boy on the stall next to me. Uh, so I got chatting with him and then there was some other ones on the market as well. And then I started hanging out with them and we would go to a youth club in West Wickham called The Phoenix. That was all 50s rock and roll and rockabilly that's being played there. Wow. Which is amazing for a youth club. And there's people turning up on motorbikes and there was rockers as well and it was you know, something that just doesn't happen these days. So then as you started finding your people, which is you know such an important part of finding vintage as well, when you started finding your people, is that when you started learning more about rockabilly beyond just the music? Yeah, not so much that early on. We'd heard that there was rockabilly clubs. We hadn't been to any because they weren't really in our area. And then I bought the Johnny Burnett LP and you know, Johnny Burnett Rock and Roll Trio. Mm. And I just listened to it and I thought, wow, where did this come from? And I just played it over and over again for weeks. And I started I started collecting rockabilly as well as rock and roll. And then we went out and we found rockabilly clubs. And I sort of progressed into liking all of it. Yeah, so it was pretty organic, really. It started with, you know, the radio, with the Elvis LPs, and then it sort of went on from there. And when you say collecting, that was collecting music, that was collecting vinyl? Yes, because um, I'm talking about the late 70s. So yeah, CDs hadn't come along yet. And there was a <laughs> shop right by Penge Market called Rockin' Records. And every Saturday when we got paid, we'd go straight into the shop and see what was new that week. And I remember buying things like the 45 of Jerry Byrne Lights Out, because yeah, I'm a big fan of specialty label as well. I was also buying the rare Rockably LPs and CBS Rockably LPs and yeah, you know, just whatever I could afford. Do you still have most of these now? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. Uh, do I dare ask how large your your record collection is? I've never actually counted it. I wouldn't say I've got a really large record collection. 
because I've never actually classed myself as a record collector. I've actually, I class myself more as a song collector. So if I bought an LP, like we'll take Rare Rockabilly LP, Volume 1, I've got the LP. I didn't see a need for me to buy um, 45s of those songs. So uh, I know it might sound a little bit odd, but I, I wanted the songs over the records. But I did buy a lot of original 45s, especially when I was DJing a lot, because I needed to get out and find things other DJs weren't playing. Yeah, let's talk about that. So you were spinning vinyls as a DJ, what, at about 18? Well, actually, earlier, 16, when I was going to the youth club, we persuaded them to let us, me and a friend of mine, Vince, we persuaded the people who ran the youth club to let us DJ every Wednesday and then occasional Saturdays. But when we did, we did loads of flyers and we used to get this youth club packed with people. We didn't get anything for it. We were just doing it for fun. To be able to to cut your skills like that, just having fun, is so much less stress than being a paid gig. Yes. And and then my first sort of proper club was a place in Croydon called the Swan and Sugarloaf. And I was 18 years old and persuaded the landlord to let us use the hall at the back. And me and a friend of mine DJed and we had a third friend who'd sit at the door and take the money and that was it. We thought it was great if we earned 15 or 20 pounds. <laughs> well, that meant that that was straight to the to the record store the next Saturday, right? If it was a Friday yes. night, you'd earn your take, and then Saturday morning you'd be back down there at the record store. Yes. <laughs> then what happened, at first in that club we were doing more a rock and roll club, 50s rock and roll club, and there was a rockabilly club in South London on the, sun, on the Monday nights that shut down. Overnight, all the rockabilly crowd came to my club. And suddenly I went from having 20 people in there to 200 people in there. <laughs> and that's when I shifted my emphasis more towards the rockabilly scene than the Teddy Boy scene. Okay, so at this point, you've heard the term Teddy Boy and rockabilly quite a bit. Before we go on with Tom's story, I got him to explain the difference. Well, first of all, the clothing. You know, teddy boys wear drape coats and slightly different hairstyle. Whereas the rockabilly scene, it's more the American style of the 50s. So the teddy boy, say, is the English style of the 50s. Rockabilly is the American style of the 50s. That's the easiest way of describing it on the clothes. Mm. Musically... It's it's a really blurred sort of boundary between the two, and I don't actually see there is one. To me, it's all the same music. Typically, in a rockabilly club, you wouldn't get the rock and roll standards. That's probably the easiest way of putting it. But then there's records that are they rock and roll or rockabilly? You know what makes the difference? You know, you, some people say, well, rockabilly doesn't have a piano or saxophone in it, but I can think of loads that do. It's really tough. You can hear a rockabilly track and know it's rockabilly, but then there are some rock and roll tracks that technically could be rockabilly. (laughs) As you said, it's quite a blurred line. Yeah. Uh, So I I don't really look at the line. It's just all the same to me. Most of us would be familiar with the rockabilly scene. Is there still quite a strong teddy boy scene that you know of? Yeah, there is. And it varies from country to country. Britain still has a really strong one. And some of the teddy boy weekends sell out. So it's still there. Yeah. And there are new people getting into it. Some countries of Europe do, like Germany and France. Past that, I'm not really sure. There's a handful of people in the USA that are into it. People have an interest here, but don't do much about it. Yeah, rockabilly really has taken over. (laughs) Yeah, and you can't buy the teddy boy clothes here. You've got to get them from another country. 
story now. So he's DJing in clubs. He's gone from 20 through the door to over 200 people. And he's finding his personal rockabilly style and passion. There was a bit of rivalry forming between rockabilly DJs as they raced to find the bands and music to introduce to their fans that would absolutely blow their minds. We were hearing songs as they were being found that we'd never heard before. Whereas when it came to the standard rock and roll, we'd heard all the Elvis and Bill Haley and Eddie Cochran and stuff. Uh, not saying it's not good because, yeah, I still like a lot of it now. But then we wanted to hear something new. And the DJs, the main DJs on the scene were in a sort of competition to who could find the next big hit in the clubs, which still happens now, but not to the same extent. When you went to someone's club, you could actually tell who the DJ was by what you heard played, because we had all sort of found different music, different songs to play. Uh, and that really sort of gave our clubs certain images. So, Tom, if we walked into your club when you were DJing, what would your sound print have been? How would we have known it was you? Depends at what time it was, because there's so many songs you know, I had started playing in the clubs that the others weren't. But you'd always know if you heard Larry Williams, it was probably going to be me. If it was <laughs> Warren Smith, got love if you wanted it, it was probably me. Then rock and blues like Mean Old Train, Papa Lightfoot. I was... DJing clubs for quite a few years, so I got through quite a lot of songs. <laughs> yeah. It must have been really exciting as well when you, personally away from the club, found a new band, a new artist from, well, I guess refound. We should all say these these guys were very popular in their day, but refound, just like we are still doing now with music from these eras, refound a song, you heard it yourself, it gave you that, you know, tingle that music can do, and then you took it to a club. When you first then spun it, and you saw the crowd also have that same reaction as you. What was that like? It, it's actually a really good feeling, and even now it still happens occasionally. I don't DJ a lot of clubs now, but when I do play something I haven't really played before and everyone gets up and dances to it, then I think, great, that's, that's nice. It's, it's what's supposed to be happening. Many, many years ago, when I was about 16, 17, yeah, we would go to pubs then, even though we weren't supposed to. <laughs> and there's a, local, there's a local pub to me near to me where there's this um, rock and roll DJ and then I was chatting to this guy and he goes I've had this great idea I said what's that he goes I'm going to be a DJ I'm going to buy just one box of 45s and then when I go and DJ I'm going to put up a sign that says no requests I'm going to start from the front and just play the records in order and then that's it I can go out and earn money as a DJ <laughs> and I remember at the time thinking that is the most stupid idea I've ever heard right? because the DJ has to do more than just playing records in a row. It's feeling the crowd and knowing what to play and how to get the audience going. But every audience is different. Yeah. So one night you might find some rockably gets the crowd going. The next night it might be some rhythm and blues. And then if that's the way the crowd wants to go, then you have to adjust your music to suit. So yeah, his idea was... I didn't think that good. <laughs> but it must also change throughout a set as well, you know. In a club, as, as groups come and go and that vibe changes, it's being able to read that while also focusing on the music that you're playing. Like, really, it's it's quite quite a skill. Yes, it is. It does vary. It vary, like you just said, over time it can vary because a song might suddenly be really popular. Everyone plays it. Every club you hear that song and suddenly no one plays it. And a classic example of what happens 
is an event will book a rockabilly artist. And then when it gets announced, all the clubs are playing the songs by that singer. And then he would play it a weekend uh, or an all day or something like that. Then suddenly everyone will stop playing it. Because like you said with Viva Las Vegas, you have such a build-up and you wanted it to live up to the expectations. Mm. What was happening was people getting all these expectations from the records and then this guy in his 70s gets up on stage and sings and it's not the records. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was a lot of that would happen, which was a bit sad because, you know, they were, it's not their fault that their records have become far more popular when they're in their 70s and when they were in their 20s, say. I have to say that didn't happen with the Stray Cats this year, thankfully. <laughs> they were amazing. <laughs> they did a great job. Thirty years ago, Tom Ingram started the Hemsby Rock and Roll Weekend in England. After he moved to the United States, he wanted to create something similar, and that's when Viva Las Vegas was born 22 years ago. The earlier years of Hemsby, it was something special. So I wanted to recreate that. And I'd been looking around where to do it originally. I wanted to do it in Los Angeles or Long Beach and decided that um, Vegas would be a better place for quite a few reasons. And so set about trying to find a location in Vegas. I was talking to uh, a guy called Seymour Heller, who's, who at the time was the manager of the Trenius. And he said, oh, a friend of mine's the in charge of the entertainment at the Gold Coast. I need to put you in touch with him. So he did. And that was it. The Gold Coast was the place. And what did it look like in that first year? Actually, really good. If I remember right, we had about 1,500 people. And so for a first event, it was a really good crowd. Yeah. The car show had about six cars in it. <laughs> we never actually set out to have a car show. Right. What we wanted was a place for people with old cars to park them all together so they weren't scattered around, more for safety of the cars. And so the car show just grew on its own. We don't even know how that happened. <laughs> I guess people now see it as a way to road trip as well. The, ima the amount of people I had met who had driven their beautiful cars from right across North America to get there. So it, it becomes quite a pilgrimage now, I think, in those beautiful cars. And they're still just all still parked next to each other. It's just there now happens to be hundreds of them. Yes. And I, I think part of the reason that's caused that, we've been very strict on the types of cars you know, cars have to be built before 1964 and they have to be period correct. So it's not about who spent the most money on their car. It's about really what would a car look like if it had been driven by someone young in the late 50s and early 60s. Mm. Realistically, after that first Viva, did you think that it would become the biggest rockabilly festival in the world? No, I didn't have a clue and I, I never expected it, never even thought about it. I was happy with the Gold Coast and thought, yeah, if we could keep something good going at the Gold Coast, then that's great. But then it just totally outgrew the Gold Coast. That's when you then moved it to the, the Orleans? It's all so self-contained now. Like everything was in that facility, which for someone from out of town who was, you know, completely starstruck by the lights of Vegas, that, that just made it feel much safer. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. It's a much better way of doing it. And also not being on the Strip, we have more space. Yeah. If we look at, at Viva Las Vegas now, you know, there's so many elements. There's uh, there's cars, there's music, there's dancing, there's pin-up, there's burlesque. You know, the list 
list goes on. Why is it important to you to include so many elements of the rockabilly scene as you can at Viva? Yeah, take yourself to go for the weekend. It costs you a lot of money by the time you bought flights, hotel tickets, and everything else that goes with going away. And sometimes if you're just stuck in, say, the same music venue for four days and nights, that's going to get very, even if the music's great, it can get a little bit too much. Yeah. So to have other things going on gives you something, something else to do to take a break from, say, the music. Um, especially you know, not everyone likes every band. So if it's a band you don't like, then perhaps you can go and do something else that's still connected to the event. If you've travelled all that way for a music event, when you come out of the music venue to chat with someone, say buy a bar or buy the gaming machines or something like that, you don't want to be hearing modern music blaring out. You want to feel that you're still part of the event and the hotel respects that. There were lots of people that I was talking to who a younger generation rockabilly fans because they had first come to Viva with their parents, had fallen in love with it yes. and were now choosing to make the pilgrimage themselves. That for you as an organiser must be really exciting, especially as we do look to the future of this festival. It is because it's just a good feeling to know that people are introducing the scene to their kids and their kids are accepting it. Yeah, there's not a lot of opportunity out there to hear the music unless you know where to go. And the fact that parents are are introducing their kids to it is great. And I think it's going to help the scene for the future. There's no question about that. We've, of course, mentioned the Stray Cats because we're all still buzzing from that earlier this year. But Viva, across the 22 years, has attracted some incredible names from the rockabilly scene. Do you still pinch yourself when you throw that email out there to booking management and they come back and they're like, hell yes? Yeah, it's, and I always use the example really for me, it was Chuck Berry, who, when he walked on stage, I just said to myself, wow, I booked Chuck Berry. <laughs> it didn't really sink in until he walked on stage. And he was the first of the the big acts to play, which is why, for me, it was so important. That it, and it really only happened because I was just sitting at home one day and I decided to watch the movie Cadillac Records again. And I just said to myself, why can't I book Chuck Berry? And I thought, I can. <laughs> and so that's why I booked Chuck Berry, just through watching that film again. As we go on, we lose more and more of these legends, you know, and our hearts break. Is that making headline guests harder to come by? It is. It's actually making it very hard. I, I don't know if you saw the newsletter I sent out the other week. I, I think we're getting very close to the day when the old acts are going to, you know, we're not going to have any to book and yeah. we have to look to the future and start looking at new people as headliners. And it's going to be down to people like me that organise events to think, to look at the acts on the scene and say, right, who deserves to be in a headline slot? Because, I mean, obviously there are some some bands from the scene from later years who can be headliners, but there's only so many of them. Yeah. And I would like to see some more of the current bands get into those headline slots. And there's a lot of bands out there. As long as people don't take the music in the wrong direction, that's the one thing that worries me. So it doesn't mean you have to do covers. People can still write their own songs. They can still stretch the boundaries a bit. I think it's having that knowledge of, of what drives this music from a historical perspective and staying within that realm, creating new stuff and being original, but being true to the model of what has inspired yes. you in the first place. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> um, there's something that got me and everyone else into this scene originally. Yeah. 
and I don't think you can walk away from that. Yeah, what was the reason people got into the music in the scene? I know your life is predominantly Viva Las Vegas, but you also have a radio show as well, which I absolutely love. Having learnt more about your story and that it was radio that got you into it, to have an hour of radio yourself that you put up there and you introduce bands and you you play this rockabilly music and you interview people. Are you hoping that maybe there's a young lad just like yourself sitting at home somewhere and this is their gateway into this scene? Yeah, I, I hope there is. Yeah, in fact, I'm sure there is. It's whether it be a band or a DJ. And in fact, when I started on Rockabilly Radio, one of the other DJs said on the air, he said when he was younger, he used to listen to my radio shows in the UK. And that's what gave him the incentive to become a radio DJ, and which was quite nice. It's so great when uh, Vintage Passions come full circle with this. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you uh, this week, Tom. Thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast this week. Well, thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of This Retro Life. You can find us on Wooshka, iTunes and Stitcher where you can subscribe and, of course, rate and review us so it's easier for other guys and gals to find this podcast. To get more information on today's guest, head to our website, thisretrolife.com or search This Retro Life on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We have some photos and videos and behind the scenes and a whole heap more retro fun, so do come and check us out. As always, if you're a vintage guy or gal from any era and into anything from cars to collectibles, we'd love to hear from you. Go to thisretrolife.com and drop us a line. Until next time, I'm Kai Handley. Thanks for listening to This Retro Life. <laughs>